Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. America Meditating Radio. That was the incomparable Diana Ross. Oldie but goodie. I'm your host, Sister Jenna, and we are in some interesting, more interesting, powerfully interesting time. Where do we start? Where do we begin? We are to be evolving as a humanity, in consciousness at least. We are to become a better version of ourselves. And I'm sure we are in unique ways, and maybe it's the tests papers, maybe it's the challenges that we're going through, 
that's perhaps trying to push us towards becoming more evolved. But I go back thousands of years, and it continues to grapple my consciousness that we've not stopped fighting, we've not stopped allowing the ego to make our decisions, we've not stopped turning a blind eye to when there's injustice. And it's just a fear we just need to survive. You know, it's always been the sense of survival. How do I survive this? You know, I want to look out for you, but I've got to live. I've got to take care of my family. I've got to put food on the table. And I wonder if we all just look out for each other, then won't the food be on the table rather than i got to just look out for me? There's so much happening as we approach the holiday season. America is now number one in COVID-19 cases, and Mother India is number two, and Brazil is number three. I mean, I can understand with India, a billion people, you know, with so many indigenous tribes there too. I mean, how do you communicate it? How do we stop this? While there's been, you know, a lot of attention given to all the coastal states and cities that have been affected by COVID-19, the pandemic has affected the entire nation and the world. Today, I'm really pleased to discuss how the South, exactly, in America, has been overwhelmed by COVID-19. We're joined by our special guest, Dr. Mana Lumumba Kasongo. And Dr. Kasongo is a board-certified emergency physician at the Phoebe Putney Memorial Hospital in Albany, Georgia, as well as a nationally published writer. She has spent much of her adult life in the pursuit of both of her passions, medicine and journalism. After graduating and receiving a master's degree from the Columbia School of Journalism, Dr. Kasungo worked as a freelance reporter for many news venues and co-founded the Black Star News, a weekly investigative newspaper in New York City. But she later went on to receive her medical degree from Rush Medical School and completed her residency in emergency medicine from New York University. Today, we welcome Dr. Kasongo to the America Meditating Radio. And first and by all means, thank you for being you. Thank you for being such a light in the world and pushing forward and not thinking less, but always thinking more. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you for having me and thank you for highlighting many of the things, the issues that I have been fighting for many years now. I think that it was an interesting piece to discuss what it means to look out for other people. And I think the quintessential question is, who are we as human beings? Who are we when we have now reached a threshold where 145,000 people were diagnosed with COVID-19 yesterday in the United States? Is it that we're just letting our guards down? Is it because we're waiting for leadership to tell us that we should wear our masks and we shouldn't gather in public? What do you think is the reason behind all of this? Like with many things, I think it's multifactorial. I think it's all of those mm-hmm. things. I think that we first did not have leadership. Or we don't have leadership at this time. That has been strong and has come out pro any citizen looked at the science and talked to people in the field and then took them seriously. If Even if we go back to just July, where here in the South, we were going through some of the worst cases that you can imagine. It was not terribly publicized because 
New York City and some of the coasts were definitely in the news. And we were looking at Texas and we were looking at Arizona. Even if you had looked at just at that, you could have said, you know, if we come up with a policy now, such as universal mask mandate, social distancing that is mandatory and that is enforced through some sort of either moral or spiritual or even political channel that was enforced. If we'd even done that in July, we would be in a different place right now, a better place. We did not do that. And I think that another aspect of this is that at some point it became very clear and it's still becoming more clear. We're finding out more information as we go along that this particular disease, COVID-19, while it affects all society and all of the communities here in the United States and specifically here in the rural South, what I've seen in my own lived experience is that it disproportionately affects black and brown communities in the worst way. So the people who are being hospitalized, the people who are getting sicker, and the people who are finding themselves on the ventilator, and the people who are ultimately succumbing of this, to me, disproportionately, are people are, that are black and brown and people who are poor. And I think that once that kind of came into focus, I think America lost interest. Certainly our president lost wow. interest, but it, that trickles down. If our government doesn't seem to care and have interest in that, then it spreads to the people. And I think it was a pandemic until you realized, or it was important until we realized, oh, who's it really affecting? Yes. Let me mention when a few months ago, or I think it was about a month and a half ago, when our number 45 had claimed that he had gotten COVID and he went to Walter Reed and he checked himself out and within just a few days, he was fine. Does that happen or is it just because he got the best health care possible? What do you think that is? Because what that communicated is, forget it, it's not a big deal, you can do this, it's not going to kill you, look at me, I'm strong. How would you communicate it, and how did you see that as a physician? So there were a couple of things that were going through my mind. As a person who lives in this country, I was hoping the best for our president because I know how badly this can go. That's, mm-hmm. that's the first thing. But the second thing was it was shocking to me how such a diagnosis did not ultimately transform him into a person who can then be sympathetic and empathize with what people are going through. There were moments there where it seemed very scary for him. But you are correct. He received the type of care that is not available to anybody else, anyone. I mean, things that are experimental that aren't even on the market yet. I mean, I think he used some kind of monoclonal antibody called Regeneron, which isn't even really available for anybody. (laughs) It's considered a process in which you get an antibody that helps you fight off disease. But wow. it's still very experimental. And he received this, a multitude of probably of other types of things that we're not even privy to. So for him to then come out four days later and say, I'm fine, don't let this dominate you, don't let this overtake you, was yeah. shocking even to myself. I've lived through many experiences I've lived in many in different cities in different countries. I've seen injustice. It shook me to my core because I thought, oh my goodness, 
if he's saying that I got it and I'm walking fine and I'm okay and I still don't have to wear a mask, then we've lost a golden opportunity, actually, to really educate about what this disease does and how we are an inequitable society. And clearly, he represents the highest of privilege. Which is such a small percentage of Americans. Such a small percentage. But they don't think that. And a lot of our American brothers and sisters don't recognize the real deal that you don't get that kind of care. You don't get that sort of attention. So you have to be mindful. Does it get tiring for you, Dr. Kasango, to see such lack of awareness of the severity of this particular virus or the times that we're in? And how do you keep going? How do you keep waking up every morning and say, I have to save as many lives as I can, even when you're exhausted? So thank you first for the question, because I think that we're starting to lose the idea that not only is this affecting the people who are in the communities, but it's affecting the people who take care of them. (laughs) That we have to look to the caregivers, the nurses, the doctors, the techs, the whole society of healthcare providers, healthcare system is being stressed to the maximum. It is incredibly frustrating to do all that I can to take care, A, of my patients, but then to also take care of my family. You know, as a person who provides care in the emergency room to people who have COVID-19 and multiple other diseases, it's been hard to see so much destruction and death in such a short amount of time. I've never seen anything like this. I went to Haiti four days after the devastating earthquake in 2010, and I thought that that was sort of the high watermark of things, of just horrific human catastrophe. It was a dire emergency. But there was an urgency that brought people together, that brought countries together, that descended upon that country, and we did what we could, and we tried to do the best that we could. This is a wholly different situation. Right. In the sense that we're not even getting the help that we need from the resources that we have. This is the richest country in the world. We have innovation. We have right. all of the resources, and yet we're acting as if this pandemic doesn't exist. Now, I know part of it is psychological because I know part of it is fatigue. I mean, you get tired. Yeah. Everybody gets tired. <laughs> you know, Who mm-hmm. wants to be wearing a mask all the time? I get it. I don't want to be wearing a mask, an N95 mask, plus a shield and in full protective gear 12 to 13 hours every day. That's exhausting. But it is incredibly frustrating for me to then leave that hospital to drive by a restaurant to see it packed with cars and to know that nobody in there is wearing a mask. It's not socially distanced. I'm driving by homes where I'm seeing family reunions going on and all I can see is the face of the person who's coming to me who cannot breathe. And it's a very graphic description of what is happening. But I think that because we don't see it on a regular basis, it's out of sight, out of mind. Sure. And until it hits you or somebody that you know or in your family, you don't think it's real or you know that it's real, it's kind of, but it's kind of still very theoretical. It is not theoretical. It is real. 
And that is where actually where my frustration lies is that I think that we're not looking out for each other as people, as neighbors, as just humans. This to me has been, I think, in terms of just a blow, not just a blow for medicine in terms of what I do, but it's been a blow to me as a human being just to see what I'm seeing is just a supreme amount of selfishness. Yeah, there's just this energy that it's all about me. You know, I don't really care about you. I know that there's a silver lining here, Doctor. I know that there will be some sort of an awakening that will take place. For example, we do have President-elect Biden that has already advocated national mask mandate. And it's been considered to be controversial by some, but I know you are going to be a big supporter of that, right? (laughs) Yes. It's surprising to me the things that are actually controversial at this point. <laughs> right? Like what is happening in people's thinking, right? Well, now I know that I'm in literally living a dystopian universe right now because wearing a mask, which I think we prior to this would have agreed that when you see your surgeon come in to do surgery, you want him or her to be wearing a mask because you mm-hmm. know it does something. It protects mm-hmm. you. They're trying to protect you. From them, you know, I'm not protecting me. I'm trying to protect you from anything that I could be carrying. I have to tell you, I had surgery about two months ago, and everything was just so clean and so in order, and it hadn't spiked back up again. It was when, you know, we were kind of leveling out to some extent, and I can't even imagine what it must be like. Here's my question: Has there been? any conversations going on amongst physicians to really mm-hmm. rise up and make a public national plea to the citizens of the United States of America from as many hospitals around the world to say, mm-hmm. listen, we've got to nip this in the bud. This is the reality. Please do this, 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 this. Because if all the doctors, for example, come up and create an ad. Let's say each doctor puts 500 bucks into the commercial. They could make it because mm-hmm. you know how expensive commercials mm-hmm. are. And they lead the way in doing this. Won't that somehow send a message? Because leadership is not going to do it. You know, wouldn't that right. help us to kind of help you? Yes. So there are different organizations such as the Color of Change, the Collective, which are organizations that are mostly inspired by the black community of physicians that are trying to do some kind of like grassroots, let's get out the information. Let's start to talk to our patients and our patient populations. And I think that journalists play a key role in that, in trying to get that message out. The problem is that it's very muddled right now. And we're so divided as a country that even if we come out with something like that, the well of goodwill has been poisoned. So it's very difficult to overcome that. But yes, I think that once we have some kind of a national leadership and once we can get a unified front in terms of what the government is saying, what the CDC is saying, you know, all of the storied institutions, in addition to what us as physicians can do individually and within our own groups, whatever group that is, whether that's your church, your mosque, your temple, whatever group it is that you consider yourself a vital part of, when we can coordinate that messaging, 
which is that masks work, that, which is that we need to hold on and continue to be, I know it's very hard to be physically distant. I know that. I understand. Yeah. I haven't seen my own mother in nine months. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm a hugger. Yeah. my own lovely yeah. mother. I understand the fatigue with that, but we can do this. I still believe, even after seeing what I've seen, I still believe that there is something that we've got as human person who understands that we have got to get this together because at some point this will be affecting every person that we know. I personally have lost at least four people that I know that I work with in the hospital to this. Sorry to hear that. Don't the insurance companies also play a role in sort of quieting the doctors from speaking out too much about this? I heard that some doctors are like, don't say anything publicly about anything because it could affect who they belong to or what kind of a insurance or company or hospital that they belong to. They don't want any feedback. So then doesn't give the doctors a chance to say, let's come together collectively and let's nip this in the bud because we can't manage this anymore. Well, I think that there are things that are subtle hints that people are getting that you can mm-hmm. infer from places that you work that we kind of really don't want there to be a national spotlight on this. We want to keep this kind of under wraps. I don't feel under that sort of pressure from any any entity that I, I work for, from any places that I do my any of my writing, any of the work that I do. I do not feel that. And even if I did, I'm a person who believes in speaking the truth and speaking truth to power and right. you would not silence me. That so, is fantastic. Um, you know, you're so interesting. I mean, who does medicine and journalism? These are really high intense careers. <laughs> and you started your career in journalism, as you mentioned, like no one's going to silence you. And I know what it's like to have journalistic personalities. You know, it's like you got to get to the truth of the matter here. And so right. you started your career in journalism, but then you went on to medicine What was going on with you at that time? Where were you inside, Mana, that took you from there to medicine? As most things, it's a journey. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it started off, you know, as a child. I was born in the Congo and moved to the States when I was about five years old. And I'm the daughter of an academic and I'm the daughter of a nurse's aide who took care of people and who takes care of people in a nursing home. So I've always been sort of infused with a idea of justice and also the idea of just empathy. And I think that everything I've done has always come from that vantage point. So the idea of even being a doctor kind of evolved when I was living in Liberia as preteen, sort of in between civil wars, but it was always a very tense time. And it was very difficult to access medical care, even coming from a privileged point of view as a daughter of a, of a professor. It was very difficult. And I just decided then that I was going to have to be a part of whatever system that was going to tackle that. It was going to be medicine. It was going to be writing about it. At some point, I decided it was going to be both. So where I was was I was living in New York City. I had gone to Columbia Journalism School. I was working as a writer, but I'd never gotten rid of this sort of inner desire to become a physician, and I had taken the courses to go into medicine, but I really felt that to make a 
bigger impact in the places that I was living, which I've always lived in underserved communities. That is the prism through which I see most of the world in underserved communities. I felt that it was really important for me to fulfill this need to really physically heal people or to be a an organization or a group of people that was healing. And then through that, you can tell their stories. Mm-hmm. You can tell the story of, you know, I live in the Black Belt. I live in the place where that stretches between Texas and the Carolinas where black people make up 60% of South. And I live amongst that community. And we are the people who basically built this country without compensation. And so I feel that the engine that helps keep me going is telling those stories, telling stories from people who have suffered in that way, from Native people. I have worked on the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico. I worked there for about two months, well, several years ago before I was done with my training. And I just knew that there was always a thread that ran through both the African-American, African, and Native American communities, that we are people who are very resilient, who are able to survive. But there's a cost to that, and I want people to understand what that cost is. I want their stories to be told, in addition to helping them physically, spiritually, and helping to be a healing hand. I really do feel that... Medicine is not only just a science, but it's also an art. And I think that those are the thoughts that were going through my head when I was deciding, like, you know, I can do both of these things. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive. (laughs) They can work in conjunction to tell a story. How are you taking care of you? Of course, sleep is always good. Apart from that, (laughs) what's it like when you see suffering every day and you get immune to it? That's right. And you can very easily become detached from it, which is an almost worse place to be once it doesn't affect you because eventually it does. <laughs> I mean, we know that, but you cannot see this type of suffering and then not acknowledge it and then continue to go on your merry way. It will come back to haunt you. The things that I do are, A, I have a wonderful family of home life. I have a wonderful husband. I have a partner. I have a soulmate. He's really the person who girds me, and we have two children. I have a seven-year-old boy and a three-year-old daughter. We are held up by our families. We're provided with just the moral support that really does come in very helpful at this time. And I have a friendship circle that's always looking out for me. I've been a part of all the different career path that I've taken, I have a very diverse group of people of different classes, races, ethnicities, all kinds of different people, you know, religions who are always looking out for me and wondering how I'm doing. And I spend a lot of time in prayer and meditation. You go through these spells where you lose track of your center. And I've had to go back to that. I've had to go back to Definitely praying and asking for guidance and looking for looking inward and looking outward to people. Just a kind word from a patient usually can get me through a shift, to be very honest with you. I mean, it takes very little. <laughs> I just need to see a smile. Like, I take joy in very small things right now. 
the kind word from my son, have a great shift, Mom. You do such good work. For my husband who, you know, makes sure that I have a nutritious shake and make sure that I'm eating right. And also exercise. I mean, I'm doing all these different things, little things that I think help me going, but they make a big difference. Just keeping me happy, healthy, joyful, and still able to do this and hopeful. It's a combination. There's no silver bullet, unfortunately. You really need a combination of all those things to continue going, to still see that this is something that we can still overcome. Well, look, you know, you have shared so much with us, and we appreciate everything that you're doing and everything that you are. Share your silver lining in all of this. I do believe that when we come out of this, and we will, we are going to, I think, have a better appreciation for life and for each other. I do believe that. I think that's coming. And I think that we are going to understand that we are not a political divide. We are still human beings. And I think that at the end of all this, we will realize that I think that there will be more commonality in our experiences. We will no longer take each other for granted. I do believe that. And that's what keeps me going. That also is something I'm going to hold on to to keep me going as well. (laughs) Thank you so much and all the very, very best. And look, if you all ever need a wellness Zoom session, I am completely there for each and every one of you. My gift. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you do. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Many blessings. Take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. So hopeful to know that you've got someone like a Dr. Mana Kasongo on your team taking care of you, looking out for you. I mean, it's the time. You feel her passion, her truthfulness, her openness, the clarity. That's what you need. Guys, please. I know all of you who listen to AM radio, you're following all the guidelines. I'm not really worried about you. But can you tell your friends or family members who might not be there, could you make it easier on folks like a Dr. Kasongo? And could you also look out for your own family members? Thanksgiving is coming. Christmas is coming. All of these things are coming. And I know we want to be with each other. And there's a reason why we're in this place. We're in this particular place because of a reason. And exactly what Dr. Kosango said, maybe we're just going to be more of a humanity, kinder and loving. Let us put on those masks. I know they're not the most greatest fashion statement, but to be honest with you, weren't we wearing our masks anyway? How many of us actually showed up in our relationships with each other completely being who we know we are meant to be? You know those moments when you come in front of someone and you kind of show them who you think they need you to see? That's a mask. You know when you show your ugly side because you're actually afraid? That's a mask. So maybe now we're seeing what it looked like wearing a mask. We couldn't really see ourselves, and nobody can see us. But one of the most powerful things about looking at each other wearing a mask is that we see the eyes, and the eyes are the windows to the soul. So maybe it's time for us to see each other's souls, to tap into the heart of each other, to recognize that we all 
come from the same source, and we all need love and kindness and safety and peace. Thank you for joining us on America Meditating Radio today, folks. Please take care of our health care providers and send them a prayer every day, just even for a minute. Just send them your blessings and good wishes. To all those at the medical facilities, especially the Phoebe Putney Memorial Hospital in Albany, Georgia, we love you. We thank God that you've got a Dr. Kasunga there and all the other doctors, nurses, staff, janitors, secretaries, folks that are coming, going, volunteers, everybody. We thank you. Thank you for your care. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless we give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same. Here's True Heart from Lucinda Drayton. Take care, everyone.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.